So we did a, a study on the Trinity. We talked about the Trinity and we talked about angels and we're going to talk about demons this morning and as well next week and probably the week after in the sense of uh, their role, their part, our part, how we all, all fits together. So I like to see the big picture, how everything works, fits together. Uh, sometimes we don't see the big picture when we're dealing with things and so it's a little more uh, difficult to understand and so this morning we're going to look at demons from uh, God's perspective. And one of the most important things, uh, it's interesting, Pastor Mike's going through the book of Job, and obviously that starts out with Satan front and center. And, uh, and then you see behind the scenes, in the beginning, where Job never sees that. We get to read it years later about actually how that whole thing starts and begins and behind the scenes what's going on. And so I'd like to do a little bit of that this morning for us that we'd be able to see uh, the behind-the-scenes kind of uh, what's, what's going on, what's uh, prompting much of what we experience in this relationship with demons. So um, let me start out by saying, if you're going to understand the Bible and the big picture in the Bible, you have to pay attention to life because all of life illustrates the Bible. Uh, God put life together in such a way as we live it it's like, aha, yeah, that's in the Bible. Aha, yeah, that's in the Bible. We see in life as we live it and see things, what's in the Bible. And so one of the major parts of our life is this whole area of family. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a husband, and I'm a father, and I'm a grandfather. And I have a wife. We've been married going on 51 years. We have eight children, six uh, son-in-laws, two daughter-in-laws, 27 grandchildren. And... Um, and that's you know been a growing kind of a thing, and it's been a great relationship. My kids all love Jesus. My uh, son-in-laws all love Jesus. My daughter-in-laws love Jesus, and all the grandkids that are at the age all love Jesus. So that's a, uh, sort of a modern miracle for that to be the case. And another cool thing is that all my kids all love me, <laughs> and my uh, son-in-laws and daughter-in-laws do as well. And so we just spent the last week over in Idaho, my one remaining unmarried son, Seth, he was 35, 34, somewhere in there, 36 maybe. I'll get, I wrote about it in my blog last night, so one of my kids will correct me on his age because I put that in there. I was taking a guess. I was pretty close. I was pretty sure I was within a couple of years anyway. And so I was thinking he was never going to get married. He'd said that his goal was to live with us and take care of us in our old age, which I appreciated. And now that he's gone, I really appreciated uh, because he's not getting doing that anymore. But he's married, and most of you heard the story. Uh, his best friend all through college years was killed as he rode a bicycle. And he and Seth were planning on doing a triathlon together. He was training for that. And uh, so he started going over, helping his wife and four kids, along with other uh, players on the basketball team that he was part of. And he ended up marrying her. And, uh, and he so he got four kids, bang, like that. And uh, I thought, I, this is probably going to be a bit of a struggle for them because um, she was married, then she was on her own for three years, running things, raising the kids. And he, at 35, was incredibly set in his ways and opinionated about everything under the sun. And uh, so I thought, well, I don't know how this is going to work. So we went over there this last week, and I've got, you know, I've been at this business of pastoring and counseling long enough. I can pick up on things 
uh, that are pretty subtle. And so I thought, well, I'll be able to tell. And I was just incredibly blessed uh, by our time there with them, their marriage, the kids, how they were taken to him. And it was just a great time. So, family. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They existed when nothing else existed. They are eternal, the only thing that is. Everything else had a point in the beginning. And so when it all started, the whole plan fell together. It wasn't chaotic. It all began with a plan, a goal in mind. And that's a still key word, is family. So with that as an intro, let me start out. A major part of living our life is the struggle that we have with demons as we attempt to live godly lives. So they have a goal, and that is to mess up our life, make it miserable, get us to live outside the will of God, to destroy, to create disunity in relationships. And the, uh, the, they have a, some major advantages. The biggest one is if I could see a demon walk up to me, I could see his red suit and his pitchfork and his pointy tail and his horns, ha, I could, I'd be set, ready. There he is, okay. But we can't see them. But they're all everywhere, all around us, and they tempt us by talking to us. We hear them in our thoughts. That Satan tempted Jesus simply by talking to him. And, but we don't recognize the source of the thoughts. We think it was put there by our mother-in-law or someone else. Uh, but we have these thoughts pop into our head all the time, 24-7. They're talking, communicating to us, always a lie, always a lie. And so uh, it's a huge struggle. Ephesians 6, finally, you know, Paul's a classic preacher, whenever he says that, that doesn't mean he's done. <laughs> he's thinking about it. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that, so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. The schemes of the devil. He has a master plan, a strategy, and he's very good at it. He's been working at it for a lot of years. For our struggle, my struggle, yours is not against flesh and blood. That is not against my flesh and blood, not against you, uh, the, the people thing. It's behind the scenes, things we can't see all around us. That's where the struggle is. That's where the problem originates. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this, of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Remember, I told you last week, the word heaven is used, first heaven, second heaven, third heaven. God's throne is in the third heaven. The second heaven is where Pluto is, and Neptune and those others. The first heaven is all this air around us. That's where the demons are, everywhere around us. If we could see them, it'd be like a bunch of birds flying around. I don't know if they're little or big. Uh, but they'd be everywhere, and they would be standing next to us, continually jabbering at us. Number two, the existence of the devil and demons is part of God's overall plan of making a partner for Jesus that is worthy of him. So the most important thing to understand about the devil and demons is they are not an oops. God created them to do exactly what they're doing. He created them to do exactly what he's, they're doing. And so because they have a, a will of sorts, he sometimes has to egg them on. That's a key part of the book of Job. When God starts out by saying, hey, have you looked at Job? Uh, you know, the devil didn't realize that God's sort of baiting him, setting him up for this thing. Uh, and so he, they're doing exactly what God wants them to do. Now, if I were to ask you this question, what is the single most important verse in the entire Bible about understanding everything that God does? I'm going to give you the answer, and so from here on out, if anybody asks you that question, you know the answer. 
And if they don't give you the right answer, you'll know the right answer. The right one is Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, the very beginning of the book. It says this, The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Key verse in the Bible, foundational verse. This is what it's all about. Now, God often gives key verses in combination with here and there. What we can see, what we can't see, now and future. And this is one of those verses. Jesus is called uh, a type of Adam. Adam is uh, an illustration of Christ. And so when he says this about Adam, I'm going to create a partner for Adam. He was also saying that about his son, the father. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and they're going to expand the family as it were. And the bride of Christ will now become part of the family. So the very beginning before anything existed, an angel and an Adam, nothing existed but the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The plan of the ages was formulated, and that was the family. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And someday it's going to be Father, Son, Bride of Christ, Spirit. We will be at the right hand of Jesus even as he is at the right hand of the Father. And so all of history is revolved around that single purpose. And uh, so I courted my wife in college. I pursued her. Many of you did the same. Uh, Movies are made around that whole uh, thing of falling in love, marrying somebody, and so that's what the Bible is about. Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Here's the key, that he might present to himself, that's in the future yet, he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. That's the future That's the wedding that's taking place. And here's the end of the story, Revelations 19. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. Ah, we finally got there. This is what it's all been about from the very beginning. The marriage of the Lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. The fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. This is the end of the story, as it were. Now there's more, but now it's Father, Son, Bride of Christ, Holy Spirit from that point on. And in the very beginning, when God's planning it all out, I'm going to create a partner for my son, suitable for him. And it's taken a lot of years to bring that about. Number three, all of history is a grand love story of God creating us, saving us, seeking us so that we would choose to love him with all of our heart, soul, might, and mind. So I, uh, we raised our kids to be champions for Jesus, and my greatest fear as they grew up and got into high school and college was that they would marry a jerk. And so I exerted as much influence as I possibly could to try to keep that from happening. I made a deal with my girls when they were about 10, 11, 12 that they would never date a guy without the guy coming to me and asking permission. I renewed that every year. It got older. I renewed it every six months. Then I renewed it every three months uh, to make sure they would follow through. And they all did. 
They all did. I said, if one of these guys asks you on a date and you don't want to go out with them, you tell me. And I'll tell them to get lost. So you don't have the problem, the pressure of saying no. And so uh, one of them, Sally, my youngest, she was in Multnomah. And uh, she said, Dad, this fellow wants to date me. And so I asked Sam, I said, do you know this dude, Aaron? She, he said, yeah. I said, tell me about him. Well, he's long hair. He's, uh, he, he's a skateboarder. He's from Hawaii. I thought, nah, that sounds like a loser to me. <laughs> and so I said to Sally, I said, Sally, I think maybe you can do better than that. She says, well, Dad, you haven't met him. I know, but, you know, dude's got long hair. <laughs> he, he's a skateboarder. And uh, I think he's, I don't know. So she said, well, okay. Well, he showed up. She was taking uh, voice lessons at Multnomah, and then part of the test was they sang in class, and they got graded by the professor and everybody else as well. He showed up for her grand finale singing performance in the class, and he walked in the back of the class just before she started to sing, and he had a bouquet of, of uh, roses. And when she finished, he ran up the aisle in the class with all these students, gave her the bouquet of flowers, and ran out the door. And she says to me, you know, Dad, it's so nice to be sought after. I mean, that's kind of creative, isn't it? I said, well, I've got to give you that. That's pretty creative, all right. I says, all right, have him come see me. And so he did, and I says, okay. And um, with Aaron, one of the things that I told him, I said, we're going to have a family gathering. All the siblings are going to be there, and they're all going to vote after they meet you. Man, he was nervous. He was nervous. But they all said, okay. So anyway, he's a, they got three kids. He's, he's a great, great son-in-law, loves Jesus, doing really, really good. But I remember that statement that Sally made. It's so nice to be sought after, to really have somebody pursue you. And so uh, the father is creating a bride for Jesus relationship, just like my wife and I, is a relationship of love. The greatest commandment in the Bible is to love God with our whole heart, soul, all of our heart, soul, mind, and, and, uh, and our neighbor is ourself. That's the great commandment. And so uh, when I was pursuing my wife, uh, she will deny this, but she on the cam- campus was the most popular girl on campus. Uh, that's no stretch of the imagination. If you know my wife, you can know why. She just likes everybody. Everybody likes her. She's nice to people. She's kind. She talks nice. And so when I thought, decided she's the one I'm going to marry, I realized all of a sudden I've got a huge... I mean, it's like every guy on campus is thinking the same thing I'm thinking. I don't know if I have much of a chance here. Uh, so that, that seems to be part of the deal, the wooing. And then once we're married... 50 years, um, we were kind of rare uh, in our day and age in that we were both virgins when we got married and we've neither, neither one had an affair for 50 years. Uh, that's the way it's supposed to be. And with God, that's what he wants in our relationship with him. And so there's a competition there is, and that's what the devil was created to do, was to create and to develop in us our focus, our love, our adoration, our singleness of purpose on Jesus as our, as our Savior, as our Lord. Um, spiritual adultery is the great sin of the Bible. The greatest command is to love Jesus, to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, and mind. The greatest sin is to not do that. Occasionally I'll joke and say to Patty, hey, 
for your birthday, I'm going to get you a helper. You know, concubine, as it were. She can clean house, wash dishes, kind of help you out a little bit. So my wife says, well, you are such a thoughtful husband. Does she say that? No. She looks at me with squinty eyes, and I know that if I were even to come close to doing such a thing, I would probably, uh, I don't know if I'd live. For some reason, she'd like to be the only one. Strange women anyway, huh? <clears throat> Number four, God knew that in order uh, to grow in our love for Jesus, we needed an adversary who would tempt us to follow, serve, and love someone or something more than Jesus. So Jesus, you'll hear Ben say this as he leads worship, God waits to be wanted, to be sought after, to love him with all our soul, heart, and mind. And so an adversary was part of the deal for us to grow in our adoration and our love for Jesus. John 21, 15, Jesus has been crucified, buried, rose from the dead, spent 40 days with his, his apostles, and in one of them he uh, joins them at the Sea of Galilee and cooks breakfast. And so when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And I would imagine that when he said that more than these, that he pointed to the fishing boats and the nets that they'd just gotten off of. Do you love me more? My wife and I play this little game. I'll say, I love you. And she'll say, I love you more. I'll say, no, no, I love you more. I love you more than more. No, no, I love you most. Oh, I love you more than most. <laughs> we can go on for that way for a while, you know. And so Jesus, I wonder if he were to appear to us and ask us the question, and he could isolate some things in our life. Maybe it's our job, our money, our car, our house, whatever. Do you love me more than whatever? And that's what he wants for us to love him more, most, above anything else in all of life. And the devil's job is to create that conflict, as it were, for that to actually be developed and prove true in our life. Number five, the strategy of the devil is to constantly create spiritual prostitutes in our life that will woo us away from Jesus. So again, life. Look at life. I, marriage, I do marriage counseling. And... Um, I would say 50% of the time when there's a conflict between a couple, there's a third party involved. Uh, it's amazing how that happens where we don't stay loyal and focused. And in our walk with Jesus, that's the case most often. Uh, there's this uh, spiritual adultery that takes place. And it's interesting that God would actually create a being like the devil to do that. But he wants our love to be genuine and proven and true. Six, the great sin of the ages is committing spiritual adultery. So I don't ask people if they're Christians because people don't understand the term. They think that if they're born in America, they're Christians, or if their dad was a Christian, they're a Christian. Uh, if they were, went to church as a kid, they're Christians. So I ask the question, do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Paul said, if anyone does not love Jesus, let him be accursed. Jeremiah 5, 7, why should I pardon you? This is God speaking through Jeremiah. Why should I pardon you? Your sons have forsaken me and sworn by those who are not gods. When I have fed them to the full, they committed adultery. 
and trooped to the harlot's house, speaking of the false gods that they were so prone to follow. God speaking about the nation of Israel as they worshipped Baal and other false gods. Jeremiah uh, moving on in chapter 7. Will you steal, murder, and commit adultery and swear falsely and offer sacrifices to Baal and walk after other gods that you have not known? Then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say, we are delivered. So that's what we do. We all week long commit spiritual adultery with the world and, and all kinds of these uh, and then we come to church. Jesus, I love you. I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. God had a little problem with that with the nation of Israel. All week long you go to these other gods and then you show up here at my house and say, we're delivered. You're our God. We'll follow you. Polytheism, um, worshiping more than one God, was sort of, uh, it's like having a spare tire. Well, maybe if this isn't the one true God, we'll have another one just in case. Or maybe if God is going to take care of us on Sundays, we'll have a God that takes care of us on Mondays and Tuesdays. So there was this polytheism practice. The nation of Israel, they would worship God, but they would also worship Baal. You see that in Africa a lot. They become followers of Jesus, but they stay with their ancestor worship. They stay with their animism uh, just in case. You know, you've got to have the spare tire. Um, God's not going to have any of that. Jeremiah 23, also among the prophets of Jerusalem, I've seen a horrible thing. This is God speaking. I've seen a horrible thing, the committing of adultery, walking in falsehood. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one has turned back from his wickedness. All of them have become to me like Sodom and are inhabitants like Gomorrah. And he uses the word adultery there. He's talking about spiritual adultery, worshiping something other than God. Number seven, the story of mankind begins with a struggle, Adam and Eve against the devil. <clears throat> so let me read it to you in Genesis 3. You're all familiar with it. You got them all filled in yet, John? Okay, okay good, okay. Okay. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat it from it nor, or touch it or you will die. Serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. So that's what he does. He contradicts God. Um, God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. She gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Uh, and so when that happened, God didn't wring his hands and say, oh, <clears throat> all right, let's switch to plan B. So God's sovereign. He's planned. He knows what's going on, and he... Uh, made provision for it, and so he's creating a helper suitable for Jesus, one who chooses to love Jesus, one who chooses to follow Jesus. So in order to do that, there's the choice, the options, with great temptations to follow instead of him. And so in the very beginning, this is uh, how the story turns out. The devil's goal, number eight, was and has been ever since to get us to disobey God.
to disobey him. The devil's primary tool for encouraging his goal is to communicate lies, to get us to believe them and then to make choices and to live our lives according to them. That one's, let's see, we're still on number eight. There we go. The goal's devil's tool. Now, when he talked to Eve, no, 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 God didn't say that. He knows that if you eat it, you'll be just like him. You'll be as smart as him. You won't have to do what he says anymore because you will know as much as he knows. And so, huh, she believes the lie and acted accordingly. And so that's what he does. Uh, his goal is to create a division between us and the Lord so that we don't follow him, so that we don't love him uh, because we think that we're as good as he is, in fact, better. Um, and we can make our own mind up about things. John eight forty four, Jesus speaking, you are of your father, the devil. You want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks the lie, he speaks from his own nature. He, he is a liar and the father of lies. He is a liar, the father of lies. That's how he started. That's what he does. He communicates us to us constantly and what he communicates to us, popping into our head all day long, our lies. And so the truth you will know the truth. The truth will set you free. People say, why do you make such a big deal out of reading the Bible every day? Because the devil doesn't take a day off. His demons that are assigned to you, they don't take a vacation. They're at it every day. And if you're going to know the truth, uh, you have to read the truth. You have to hide it in your heart. You have to meditate on it. You have to study it so that when you hear things that aren't true, you know they're, they're, they're not true. 1 Timothy 4.1, but the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Paying attention to. Paying attention to. Deceitful spirits, that is, they deceive, they tell lies, doctrines of demons, that is, things that demons say are true and aren't. Number 10, the basic principle is that we are the servants of the one whom we obey. So we talked about this in a previous class, but one of the plagues, the diseases, the uh, problems of the church today is that we've allowed grace to go to seed in that we've made that the whole picture. And so as soon as somebody starts talking about, read your Bible every day, spend time with God in prayer every day, uh, love your wife, oh, we're saved by grace. What's with this work stuff? We're not talking about getting saved here. We're talking about living life. As a believer, as a follower of Jesus, do you love him? Uh, what does that mean? That means you're going to follow him. It means you're going to obey him. Romans 6, 15. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? That was way back at the beginning. People were saying that. Oh, we're under grace. I can do what I want. What I how I live doesn't matter. May it never be. That's stupid. That's a Duke interpretation. Don't you know that when you present yourself to someone as slaves for obedience, you are the slaves of the one whom you obey. You are the one uh, who, what you obey, that's your master. Uh, number 11, the one whom we obey is the one who we love. <clears throat> so, 
Do you love Jesus? Christian, oh yeah, I love Jesus. I sing songs. I love you, Jesus. So, do you really love Jesus? How do you know? Jesus asked Peter, do you love me more than these? Exodus 20, chapter, uh, chapter 20, verse 6, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. To those who love me and keep my commandments. Jesus speaking in John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and we will disclose, and will disclose myself to him. So we can kind of water things down and say, God forgives. He does. He does. That's a good thing. But that doesn't mean we can lose our motive and our desire and our pursuit and our love for him. I love him with all my heart because he has forgiven me. And the more he forgives me, the more I love him. And I then am motivated to serve him and to obey him. And if I don't, then I really don't love him. I can say it. I can sing it. But if you love him, you will obey him. Twelve, the devil and his demons are controlling most of the world and its philosophy. Big target for the devil is education. You know, it's been said by every group since the beginning, control the minds of children and you control the world. Luke 4, 6, the devil said to him, to Jesus, I will give you all this domain and its glory. It has been handed over to me. By the way, who gave it to the devil? It wasn't God. It was Adam. Because God gave it all to him. And when he did what the devil said rather than God, it was all legally handed over to him. It's been handed over to me. I give it to whomever I wish. 1 John 5, 19, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world, that's this thing we live in, lies in the power of the evil one. 13, he knows that if he can get us to love the world and the stuff in it, that we can't love God and he will own us. So if we were to talk about what are those things that are tempting us to love Jesus less, that become... Uh, create and cause spiritual adultery to take place in our life. I'd say the number one suitor uh, that is pulling us away from him is the world and the stuff in it. We see it, we feel it, we touch it, we own it, we buy it, we work for it, and pretty soon it consumes us, and we depend on it for our joy, our security, and our future, and our happiness instead of God. <clears throat> Matthew 4 Eight. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world, their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. If you fall down and worship me. That was his method in the beginning. It's been his method ever since. 1 John 2.15, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's a scary verse. You love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. You know what God will do to test you? He'll cause your car to break down. Just to check. How you doing? How do you deal with that? Maybe you'll lose a job. Just checking, seeing how you're doing. How do you manage that one? Um, all through the course of our life, God brings things into our life just to check. 
How are you doing? Am I first or is everything in your life first? What is the source of your security? <clears throat> James 4.4, 4, you adulteresses. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's a strong enough statement that we ought to think about it in regards to our own life and where we are with stuff. 14, conquering and controlling our love of the world is the most important area of spiritual warfare that there is in our lives. People will ask me periodically, you believe in spiritual warfare? I said, oh yeah. It's like 24-7. So, what do you do with demons? I, you know, demons are not the problem. It's all the stuff. That's the problem. The demons, compared with cars and boats and fishing rods and rifles and bows and money, demons are a piece of cake. This is the stuff that's the problem. This is the real competition for my love for Jesus. All they're doing is just providing it, putting it out there. A key discipline in our life in order to win this. By the way, number 14, you should circle that one and put about 10 stars around it in your notes. That's the, the key challenge for us is not to love the world. A key discipline in our life in order to win this daily war is giving. Talking to a pastor not too long ago, he said he preached his first sermon ever on giving. Been there at church about five years. I said, how'd it go? He says, oh, I got about six anonymous um, emails. I said, well, if they're anonymous, that means it wasn't positive. He says, no, it wasn't positive at all. He said, I don't know if I'll ever preach on it again. I said, you know how to solve that problem? He says, how's that? I says, don't wait five years. Do it like every three months. And then, you know, what people have a problem with is the motive. What's your motive? I said, my motive, if I talk to you about giving, is I've got plenty. I've got five boats. You know, I probably get paid too much. Anybody who owns five boats makes too much money. Uh, oh, I can't help myself. You know, it's just a disease I have. A boat, I've got to have another boat. You can't have too many boats. And you're thinking, do you love the world? I'm going to sell one. Maybe I'll just give it away. Anybody want a boat? I'll give one just to check myself. Oh, you want one? Okay. So God has provided this discipline to, to help us. That is, give give regularly, systematically, sacrificially. It's sort of like getting an inoculation against the coronavirus. Huh, you guys all getting sick? I'm cool. I'm not going to get sick. I got a vaccine. Giving is God's method, God's idea. I didn't invent it. He did it. And uh, so, but he did it so that we could regularly just think about where we're at with the world and the stuff that's in it. 16, another concubine that we committed spiritual adultery with in our life is comfort. This, especially in the U.S., that's the primary idol. The absence of trials, pain, and struggles. Pastor Mike's preaching about that this morning. If you weren't here at the last service, you'll hear it at the next service. There's whole movements that basically teach God's intent is that we wouldn't have trials. If we have trials, it's simply because we don't have enough faith. That's like the stupidest thing. I can't believe people believe that, but they do because they want that. If God really loves us, he'll take all the problems out of our life. So that's happening when we get to heaven. Meantime, life is full of problems because he wants us to grow, to be like him. And there's this continually testing. Do we love him uh, with all of our heart? Uh, comfort. 
18, the desire for joy is not wrong, it's the source. Uh, did I skip 17? I'm sorry. We pursue comfort because we believe it will bring joy into our life, which is the greatest longing of our heart. So my wife gives me great joy. That's the way it's supposed to be. And if I said, hey, you just, oh my, you make my life, I've, if I could just get two of you, I'd be twice as happy, huh? Well, then the source of joy from her is going to totally dry up. Uh, so we're married. She's a great source of joy in my life. And uh, God is a great source of joy in our life. And he wants to be the only source. He wants to be the only source. But we don't get that. And the devil is constantly lying to us. Just one more car and then you'll be happy. Just a little bit more money, then you'll be happy. Uh, it's always something else that has to do with circumstances and events in our life. 18, the desire for joy is not wrong. It's the source that we seek it from. That's the problem. There's a difference between joy and pleasure. Pleasure is when I catch a fish. Pleasure is when I kill an elk. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with it. But it doesn't last. It's over. Uh, joy, on the other hand, is uh, inside, and it does last, and it gets stronger. Psalm 1611, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. So God is the source of joy. In your presence is fullness of joy. 19, demons are constantly working at trying to get us to seek joy in all the wrong places, tempting us with pleasure. So all of Scripture has basically two meanings. The obvious world uh, and then the spiritual one as it, as it applies. Read the book of Esther. Ah, it's a great story. What's it about? Uh, read the book of Ruth. Ah, great story. What's it about? Song of Solomon. That's a great book. I read that on our honeymoon <laughs> out loud to my wife. Uh, what's that about? It's about romance. Uh, Proverbs 7. I saw among the naive and discerned among the youths a young man lacking sense, passing through the street near her corner, and he takes the way to her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, in the darkness. Behold, a woman comes to meet him, dressed as a harlot, cunning of heart. Now, that's a picture of a demon, as it were, in the spiritual world. She is boisterous and rebellious. Her feet do not remain at home. She is now in the streets, now in the squares, and lurks by every corner. So she seizes him and kisses him. And with a brazen face, she says to him, I was due to offer peace offerings. Today I have paid my vows. Therefore, I have come out to meet you, to seek your presence earnestly, to seek your presence earnestly. And I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, with colored, with colored linens of Egypt. I have sprinkled my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us drink our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with caresses, for my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He has taken a bag of money with him. At the full moon, he will come home with her. Many persuasions, she entices him with her flattering lips. She seduces him. Suddenly, he follows as an ox goes to slaughter, as one in fetters to the dis uh, 
in fetters to the discipline of a fool until an arrow pierces through his liver as a bird hastens to the snare so he does not know this will cost him his life. So there you have the story in Genesis of the devil and Adam and Eve, very same thing, as he constantly is doing uh, this passage to us, tempting us, enticing us. Yeah, come on. It's no big deal. It's just one night. I was in Africa, uh, Sierra Leone. We were building a building, about 10 of us. We're in this motel. About 2 in the morning, I got a knock on the door. I says, hello? A lady said, would you like a massage? And I got up and answered the door. I says, no, thank you, but you see that door right down there? There's three guys in there. Go knock on their door, and when you do, tell them I sent you. <laughs> so she says, thank you. She walks down, knocks on the door, and they opens the door. She says, she points up at me, and I'm looking down the hall. I, three guys from our church. They yelled, I'm telling your wife when we get home. <clears throat> That happens. 20, a key discipline to win this war is to rejoice always and to never grumble or complain about the trials of life. So you're not going to let comfort be an idol in your life. You're not going to allow the devil to use that to entice you away from your love, your adoration of God. So Pastor Mike in his sermon says something very pointed, and that is when people go through trials... Christians that go to church, they've got this thought, if God really loves me, he's going to make my life comfortable, and because my life isn't comfortable, he must not love me, I'm chucking this whole thing. I don't know how many times I've seen that happen. Uh, they didn't really love Jesus. They loved comfort. And all Jesus was was a gimmick uh, to get them what they wanted. Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. That's not just a good habit. That's all about loving Jesus. James 1, 2, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. That's just not so we'd be positive. That's about loving Jesus. That's what life's about. 21, The devil's strategy is to get us to commit spiritual adultery, and he is constantly tempting us with prostitutes. So I get up in the morning and I say every morning, I love you, Jesus. I love you with all of my heart, with all of my mind, with all of my might. And I don't love anything ahead of you. You are my Lord, my Savior. 22, he knows that if he can get us to love something other than God, that our love for God will be destroyed. So it's a daily deal, the prostitute waiting at the corner saying, hey, come see me, pleasure. And uh, I said, no, thank you, I'm married. I love Jesus, he's first. 23, our main activity in this life to maintain, grow in our love for God is to seek him. Seek him. So I had 
a whole bunch of competition when I decided I'm going to marry her. And so I started pursuing Patty. I got her schedule from a friend. Every class she was in every week where she went to work. Uh, and I accidentally was at the same spot at the same time she was. This kind of happened. I said, oh, good to see you. You want me to carry your books for you? Did that for a while. Then one day I got up the courage. Hey, I, you like the We Three trio, don't you? They're singing in this church. You want to go? And yeah, this pursued. And then one day I said, you know, we just ought to live together forever. Want to get married? Actually, she said that to me first. I can't remember. She says, I can't remember any of those details, so I just make them up. Deuteronomy 4.29, from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if, if, if you search for him with all your heart and all your soul. Psalms 9.10, those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Psalms 27.8, when you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, O Lord, I shall seek. Psalms 34.10, the young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Psalm 63, one, O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. 24, we seek the Lord by spending time with him and listening to him by reading his word. I made a series of I love you statements to Patty, and I said, every time I say I love you, this is what I'm saying, my commitment to you. One of them is I will listen to you, I will talk to you anytime you want for as long as you like, and I will, pay, I will honor you by paying sincere attention to your words. <laughs> she will sometimes say, I love you, just reminding me of my, I love, that's when my eyes glaze over, you know, she'll say that. But, uh, oh, yeah, 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 okay, what were you saying? And uh, so communication, that's how I communicate to Patty that I love her, is by talking to her, listening to her, spending time with her. Psalms 119, verse 2. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies, observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart, who seek him with all their heart. That's how you do that. Psalms uh, number 25. We seek the Lord by spending time with him, talking to him in prayer. I don't like to talk. I like to fish. If you go fishing with me and you talk too much, I probably won't go fishing with you again. My wife likes to talk. She solves problems by talking. She deals with anxiety by talking. She solves problems by talking. Everything, I mean, that's her solution for life is to talk. That's just the way she is. I'm just the opposite. The more I talk, the more confused I get. But I love her with all my heart. And so I will listen to her as long as she wants to talk, and I will talk to her as long as she asks questions because that's what she wants. That's what makes her happy. And I, I do that because I love her. 25, we seek the Lord by spending time. I'll give you that one. 26, we seek the Lord by faithfully and routinely gathering together as the church, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. We, the church, are his companion forever. We will sit at his right hand forever. We are the one he is making holy without spot, wrinkle, or blemish so that we will be worthy of him forever. And when we are part of that process, we become one of God's favorites. 
when we contribute our life and invest our life to making his bride beautiful, we become one of his favorites. 27. You all finished with that one? We seek the Lord and communicate our love for him by corporate worship. So if you do a survey in our country in 300,000 churches, there's not that many anymore. There used to be. Now there's about 227,000 churches in the U.S. that are Bible-believing evangelical churches. But go through them and say, you ever had any conflict in your church? Yeah. What was it about? 90% of the time it'll be music, worship. J. Vernon McGee said when the devil got kicked out of heaven, he fell into the choir loft. He was in charge of music when he was uh, the chief cherub. That's what he did. But he knows, I'll attack the things that are most important. Make a difference. We worship. You know that's the number one given commandment in the Bible? What's it about? It's saying, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. That's what it's about. It's not whether I like it, whether it makes me feel good. It's about God and me saying to him, I love you, I love you. And so when I sing worship songs, it doesn't make any difference how old they are, how new they are, how fast they are, how slow they are. All that matters is I sing them as an expression, I love you, I love you. You know, people want to uh, sing hymns. I like hymns. I grew up in hymns. But if you want to ask yourself the difference between hymns and current songs, one of the major emphasis on many of the contemporary songs is the emphasis on I love you. The love songs. Many of the worship songs are not theology. They talk about hymns being heavy in theology, and they were. And I'm not saying one is better than the other. I'm just saying appreciate some of the contemporary music in its emphasis in that it's a love song to Jesus, to the Father. It's a love song about how he has given everything for us and sing it as a love song. I love you, Lord. I love you. I love you more than anything, more than comfort, more than money, more than stuff. I love you. You are my Savior. You created me. I'm going to live with you forever and ever and ever. Ask yourself the question if Jesus said to you, do you love me more than these? Would you be able to know the answer? Not what would you say, but would you know the answer? Really, truly. Is he the center of your life? Do you love him with everything that's in you? And so that's a great question to ask ourselves. Not what do I believe, but how do I live? If you love me, you will obey me. If you love me, you will follow me. If you love me, you will serve me. If you love me, you will love my bride. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I do pray that you will stir us, help us to look at our own life. We live in a culture that makes it really, really tough to keep you first. But, Lord, we can do that because you grant us the strength to do it. You've given us the disciplines. You've given us the resources, your word, your Holy Spirit. Uh, And, Lord, I pray that we will be diligent to keep our soul to keep track of where it is that we're and what we're loving. If we get attracted as a married uh, person to another person, we recognize what's happening and we can either keep it from happening, stop it from happening, or we can let it go. I pray that we would recognize it in ourselves, spiritually speaking, when anything would come ahead of you. You declared, Lord, if we love father or mother, husband or wife, more than you, we would not be worthy of you. I pray that nothing uh, in all of life is ahead of you in our love. We love you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.